The year was 1921. Sing Sing Prison in New York was looking for another warden for their prison. They went through wardens so quick, they ate them up and spit them out. This was a maximum security prison. And in 1921, enter Lewis Laws, the new warden of Sing Sing Prison, and his wife, Catherine Laws, and their three little girls. Catherine was warned. She was warned, hey, don't ever go down the street from your house a half mile to Sing Sing Prison. You don't need to get involved. This is your husband's job. Catherine was a believer. She loved Jesus, and she said, no, my husband and I are called to love these men, even these hardened criminals, to love them with the love of Christ. And so she began to go to this prison with her daughters against the counsel of her friends and family, and she spent her days teaching men to read and write. She taught a murderer, Braille. She taught another man how to sign She spent 16 years loving the unlovable and caring for their needs and being a regular every week at the prison. She stole the hearts of the men at this prison for her love for them. 1937, 16 years later, Lewis Laws didn't show up one day. There was a new warden. And word began to spread The Catherine Laws had died in a car accident. And for the next few days, the attending warden would be on his morning walk, and he would see men at the main entrance of the prison grabbing on to the fence and looking through the fence down the road to the Laws' house. And the new warden did something that could have lost him his job. He did something incredibly radical. He opened the main door of the prison to these hardened criminals that they might walk down the street and pay their last respects to the woman that they called the angel of Sing Sing Prison. And to a man, every one of them came back by evening time. You see, real love changes people. Tangible love changes changes people. When I think about this story, I can't think personally and reflect on what it looks like to be loved by Christ. As a hardened criminal, from a spiritual perspective, as a hardened criminal who deserves nothing, who doesn't deserve the mercy and grace of God, the fact that he would free me from my sin, come to a world, die on a cross for me, I don't know about you, but it's changed me. It's freed me. It's freed me even at at times to love other people. Maybe not fully like Christ, but well. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has it changed you? Has the love of Christ that he's poured out on you changed you? And is it changing others through you? Turn with me to Romans chapter 13, and we'll finish Chapter 13 and the last few verses of 13 and verses 8 through 14. If you've got a Bible next to you, if you don't have one with you, it's page 948 um, in the Bible. 
on a chair next to you. It's kind of a bookend from chapter 12 and 13 that we've been walking through for the last few weeks. And so what we've seen is that in view of God's mercies, in view of the gospel, there's some things that ought to change in our life. Relationships should change. Relationship with God should change because of the truth of the gospel, his mercy that he's shown us. That we shouldn't be squeezed into the pattern of this world, but we should be transformed. It also changes the relationships that we have in the church with one another, if you recall. It should change the way we care for one another and love each other and bear each other's burdens and also exercise the gifts that God has given us, not for our own sake, not for lights in front of us, but for the body of Christ. And then we saw it changes our relationship with even our enemies, that we don't repay evil for evil, but we repay evil with good. And we don't avenge the things that are done wrong to us. We don't avenge those, but we leave room for God, who often uses the tool, as we learned last week, it changes, the gospel changes our relationship to authority, specifically civil authority. See, civil authority, rightly understood and rightly practiced, is a tool. It said that authorities are God's ministers to bring justice even and to bring good, to uphold good and to put down evil. But what about everybody else? See, Paul, what he does in today's text is he captures everyone else, our neighbor. But maybe you ask, who is your neighbor? Look with me. Romans 13, 8 through 14. Let me read it. Oh, excuse me, let me start in seven to get a little context. Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then he turns around, verse eight, and says, owe no one anything except one thing, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when you first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then... Let us cast off or put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This text is going to teach us some things about love, who it is that we are to love, what love looks like and doesn't look like, and it's going to show us in the end, why is it so urgent? Why is it so urgent to love? See, Paul's first thought about love is this, we're to love our neighbors because it's the law. We're to love our neighbors because it's God's law. You see it in verse 8 through 10. Let me unpack that with me. Look at your Bibles. This is pretty interesting. Look at this transition from owing taxes and revenue and honor and respect to repay that. Then he says, he flips that around and transitions and says, owe no one anything. And maybe you say, well, I've got a mortgage. I've got um, 
some payments on my car that are still left. I owe some people money. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Jesus speaks about a lender. The previous few verses talk about repaying what you owe, but I think what he's saying here is that you need to make good on your obligations. If you owe someone money, you ought to repay it. If you've told someone you're going to do something, your yes should be yes and your no should be no, that you have obligations and you should fulfill those. April's coming. Taxes are coming, right? The revenue, the taxes, honor and respect. And so he transitioned and look at the next phrase, accept. So there's one debt that you have that you can never repay. What is it? As a Christian, you have one debt. You can never pay it off. And that debt is to love another. And maybe you're like me and you say, well, who am I supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? Who is that really? And it's interesting because he's been spending some time talking about the one another's, which has implication for the church and the way that we love each other in the church. But look at this word that he uses here. He says, who loves another or come down and says, loves your neighbor. The, the phrase is literally translated, one who is near. It's broad. It's not specific just to the church. So it covers everyone. You have a debt to everyone to love them. Do you see it? You don't want to see it, right? Who is my neighbor? I want to redefine who my neighbor is. And look at the connection as well. I want, to, I want you to see this connection. He connects love to the law. Do you see it? Fulfilling the law. He connects love to the law. We often don't think that way or practice that way. We're often not built that way. We're either kind of the, the law keepers or the hippie law breakers over here. Like we love breaking the law or we love to keep it. And your job, maybe the accountant or the HR person is telling you how you're supposed to operate as the salesperson over here who's a people person. And sometimes there's tension in that. We often don't connect those things. We put those things opposed to one another. But in God's word, Paul does it here and Jesus does it as well in Matthew 22. Remember when the lawyer comes to him and Ask him some questions, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, the greatest commandment. Remember it? Love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the command. He connects law and commands with love. Have you seen this in the church? Where, where some people are all about following commands and laws, they don't have a lot of room for grace. They tell me, you know, after a sermon... This has is, this is not happened here, but they tell preachers after a sermon that's really hard, you know, like the sermon that really brings it. They, they let you know those things. They're like, yes. And then you got the person on the other side, and you preach a sermon that's dripping with grace, and you're like, oh, I love that. It's so great. We put those far apart. We do it in parenting. We do it in relationships. You got good cop. You got bad cop. We do it with personality tests. But here's the connection. God puts these things together. On purpose. Jesus puts them together on purpose. Intention that there's law and the law is fulfilled with love. And you see the tension in this in the Gospels. If you've read the Gospels at all, you, you see this tension all over the place, specifically with Jesus when he shows up with the Pharisees or when the Pharisees shows up when Jesus is doing something. You know, when he's like um, healing someone on the Sabbath, you've got these religious... Dogs that come and they're just barking at Jesus because he's healing someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. I'm fulfilling the law. 
It's loving to do this. They've completely divorced law from love. Let me try to put this together for you. See, without Jesus, the law is powerless. Without his love, the law is powerless. And without law, love is directionless. I want you to think about the image of a train and train tracks with me for a minute. Maybe this will help. Train and train tracks. See, a train needs the train tracks to run on, to get somewhere, to have direction, to go. See, the law is like that. It provides the rails that we run on. Commandments are like that. In your life, New Testament imperative commands, they are like the train tracks that take us in the right direction. But see, a train needs tracks. Train tracks also need a train. And the engine of that train is the love of Christ. Romans 5 says that love is poured out through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Love is like the engine, our engine for the train to go, for the train to have power to move down the tracks. You see, the law is powerless without Jesus and his love. But without the law, love is directionless. They go together. But who is my neighbor? You remember the passage in Luke 10 where the lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? And the lawyer or religious scribe, which is likely the case, he quotes Old Testament, he quotes Leviticus 19. You know when he quotes from Leviticus? I know, you're in your Bible reading plan. You're trying to get through it as best you can. He quotes Leviticus 19, 18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. When you go to Luke 10, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's interesting because what Jesus says, in, or what Luke says in this passage is, the lawyer didn't have good intentions. He was trying to test Jesus with these questions, and so he turns to them, and Jesus turns to him and says, check, you got it right, now go do it. And then the lawyer, meaning to tempt Jesus, to test him, it's an insincere question, he says what? You know, you know what he says? Who's my real neighbor? And so Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story? The Good Samaritan there's a man that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about 17 miles down a windy path, a tough path, where there's known robbers, and there's all kinds of trouble along that path. So a Jewish man goes from Jerusalem, 17 miles, walks to Jericho, and who does he encounter? He encounters these robbers who beat him up and leave him for dead. And then here comes a priest, a man who knows the law, a man who follows the law and puts the law into practice and he comes by and he walks away. And then a Levite who is kind of the right-hand person to a priest who knows the law and helps the priest, he comes where the man is, this Jewish man, and he also walks away. And we're not told why, but we can assume a few things, perhaps. One, Maybe they thought the man was dead, and they know the law, and if he's dead, he's unclean, so I'm not going to get close to a dead person. Or maybe they fear the robbers who are still around, they're going to rob them if they stop and help this man as well, or maybe they just didn't care. And then Jesus says there's a Samaritan that stops 
He's speaking to a Jewish lawyer. The Jews didn't like Samaritans. Excuse me for saying this, but they felt like they were half-breeds. They had intermarried with other people from other races. And the people in Jerusalem, the people that were Jews, the Jews looked down upon the Samaritans. That's why it's so crazy when Jesus goes through Samaria to the woman at the well that he loved the Samaritan. And so he's speaking to the lawyer. That's important. This Samaritan, the lowest of low, he's the one who stops. He's the one who gives care to the man that's hurt, bandages wounds, and takes him to an inn and pays for it and checks up on him. And at the end of that story, what does Jesus say to the man who asked the question, who is my neighbor? Who was the neighbor? It was the Samaritan. He had to say it. Who is my neighbor? It's the Samaritan. See, even the Samaritans can love. It's as if he's saying, listen, he's fulfilling the law of love by stopping and caring. And the people who know better, the people who really know the law, won't do it, aren't doing it. So it's the wrong question, isn't it? Who's my neighbor? Or how can I love my neighbor? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you know that person? I hope it's not you. I hope it's not me. Sometimes it, perhaps it is. It's rarely lifts a finger to love your neighbor, those around you, and yet you got 50 reasons why the person who does did it wrong. Mm. I don't like the way you did that. Well, come on and help. Are you willing to stoop and serve to love? Are you just hiding behind the law and what you know or a desire to be argumentative? Are you looking for ways to love your neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Anybody that comes in your path. I want to read you a letter written to a pastor in Dallas about his flock. From a waitress who waited tables close to the church on Sunday. This lady says this. I'm sending this message to let you know how much members of your church have touched my life. Four years ago, my husband and I lived in a small two-bedroom apartment with our two small children when we were suddenly stunned, blessed, and challenged by the birth of identical triplet boys. Wow. Our whole family lived a thousand miles away, and we had no help. Three weeks after they were born and the day after we came home from the hospital, I had to get a job to pay for diapers and formula. I got a job waitressing at a restaurant near your church. I was still in immense pain, and I was truly frightened that this was more than my family could handle. On that first day at work, I waited on a group of people from your church. They were single adults. I had been a waitress in college, and I knew that Christians or people coming from church often were horrible tippers, but also very difficult and rude. But I was pleasantly surprised. They noticed that I was a little slow, and instead of complaining, they were forgiving They even asked about my life and learned about my situation with the triplets. This group continued to come on Sundays, and I felt honored to serve them. They'd asked me about my children and encouraged me in ways that I needed. They lifted my spirits, and in ways I can't describe, it made me look at waitressing as a way of serving people for God. I'd say a prayer when I dropped off a plate of food and thought a blessing 
that I could give people. I had been feeling so confused about God and his plans. And then out of nowhere, this group of Christians entered my life in such a strange but tangible way. And they gave me comfort. Our first Christmas with the triplets was financially devastating. We were barely paying our bills. This group didn't come in and eat to my disappointment. But they came in and left an envelope with a lot of money for me. I went shopping at Toys R Us that night on the way home from work and cried the entire time. I knew I was getting a lot of strange looks, but I didn't care. It has been years now since I've seen that singles group from your church. My husband was transferred back to Chicago and now makes enough money that I can stay home with our children. Things are such, such better now. That whole experience recently came to mind. And I wanted to let you know that something very special happened in my life to make me a Christian. And I thank God for letting me serve this group. Are you looking for ways to love your neighbors? The tip in Magnolia just went up today. Are you looking for ways to serve your neighbors in ways you might not even be thinking about? Listen, you can't pay off this debt. It's something that Christ has left for you and me. Christ, the one who has paid your debt, the one who has set your debt free of the debt of your sin, Do you know that truth and that message? We have a debt to anybody around us that we can never repay. It's a debt of love. Loving our neighbor, it's God's law. It's the way that we feel the law of Christ. And maybe you say, well, man, I got a busy life right now. I'm in school, and I can't really do that yet. I've got studies. I've got a new job. I'm out. I can't do that in the season of life that I'm in. I'll do it later when I get a little older and I'm retired and the kids are out of the house. Paul has a little bit more urgency to this message. Look at it there with me. There's a little bit more urgency. Look at verse 11. Besides this, so he moves on, verse 11. You know the time that the hour has come for you to what? Wake up from sleep. Like, I think what's going on in Rome, and we've talked about this a little bit in the book of Romans, um, they are living under the rule of Nero. They're living in a, in a land that is not granting them a whole lot of freedom here in their Christian faith. And so I think they've become both indifferent and disengaged in the world around them to kind of make it. That's the implication of this text, that these believers in Jesus and Rome need to wake up. And what do they need to wake up to do for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. If you know your Bible, you know this motif of darkness and light. In general, the idea of night has to do with this world that's in darkness. And when Jesus, the morning star, one day comes, that he will bring light. And so we anticipate that. But in a more specific sense, darkness represents sin. It represents the pursuit of sin, that we ought to put off the darkness and be children of light and walk in light, live in the light, and also share the light of Christ. So it's kind of these double meanings, light as children of God. And look at what he says about this light or the darkness. It says we ought to cast off or put off the works of darkness. What do we put on then? If we wake up, we cast off the old clothes and we put on some new clothes. And it says the armor of light. 
This is battle gear. This is like Ephesians 6, armor of God kind of language that we see here, that we put on the armor of light. So here's your second thought. Your first thought was love your neighbor. It's the law. Your second thought is live in the light. Jesus is coming. We ought to be people who live in the light. And it says put on. We put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. And then he lists some things. He lists what does it look like to walk in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and quarreling and and jealousy. So we put off these deeds of darkness and we put on light. But more specifically, he gets more specific about what we should put on. Look at there in verse 14. Put on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. What does that mean? What do you mean put on Christ? He's in heaven. I'm here. If you're seventh grade and under, you're trying to figure out this abstract thought. He's your identity. You think about what a police officer does or an official like that does when they wake up in the morning. And they put on their uniform. They put on, maybe if they're SWAT, they put on their Kevlar vest. It reminds them to be careful. And they put on their uniform, which is their identity. This is who I am. This is what my job is. It's also people see it. And so there's an example that I'm, set, I'm setting by wearing this uniform and putting on this uniform. And then they put on a badge that reminds them that there's a responsibility to their city and their citizens. In Magnolia or Montgomery County, And then they put their weapon on, that they are a steward of the lives that they encounter to care for them with restraint. See, that officer has an outfit. He has clothes that he puts on or she puts on that tell you who they are, their identity. And that's what it looks like to put on Christ. You ever heard the phrase, clothes makes the man or the woman? You ever heard that? You ever heard the phrase, if you look good, you feel good. If you look good, you play good. It's about confidence. Is there a little bit of truth in that? Maybe. I think people who like to to shop really like that. But this is about confidence. What you put on affects your confidence. Are you awake? Have you woken up? Do you need waking up? You still got your old clothes on or you put your new clothes on. The new clothes of Christ, it's given you new life and a new way of living. This is what he says to these Roman Christians who are struggling. Wake up. Put on your new clothes. Drop the old clothes. They're no longer yours. Your old self is gone. The new self has come. You're a new creation in Christ. You're different. This is your new identity. And then he says this, make no provision for the flesh. You think about hurricanes when they show up here. You make provisions. What do you do? You get your generator ready because there's a tree that's going to fall on a line somewhere. And you're going to be out electricity for days. That's what it's like in my neighborhood. You're going to get water. You're going to pour water if you have it in the tub. You're going to make all kinds of provisions. You're going to get apparently toilet paper and water from the store now or a thing. You're going to make all kinds of provisions. This text is saying don't make any plans for sin, to sin. And in context, you might say it this way. Don't 
don't entertain some ideas. Don't entertain the idea that drinking, in the text, washes away your sorrows or drunkenness will wash away your sorrows. Or your boredom from doing the same thing every day. Or entertain you. It won't do it. Don't entertain that idea, church. Don't entertain the idea that adultery or pornography or an emotional affair will fill you in ways that your spouse doesn't. Don't plan that. Don't entertain that idea. It's not true. It's a lie. Don't entertain the idea that your lack of contentment or fulfillment in life and your life isn't what you want it will go away by just living through somebody else and being jealous of somebody else's life. Don't entertain the idea that bitterness and anger unleash will heal whatever it is in your heart that's hurting. Don't entertain the idea that because you're hurt, you need to hurt everybody else in your path. It won't heal you and it won't help others. Sometimes we need to know what love ain't before we understand what it is, the tracks. We need to understand that it's not those four commandments that listed these temptations that we fall into. But we ought to do some things. We ought to direct our minds in different ways, shouldn't we? How about this? Direct your mind in the confidence that we have on putting on Christ to find our fulfillment and our desires and our satisfaction and our peace and our future hope in Him. If you're looking for it in all these other places, you're not going to find it. You're going to find your hope and your peace and your satisfaction and your fulfillment in Christ. Do you know that truth? We ought to love our neighbors and live in the light. Perhaps you know from church history a guy named St. Augustine. That name ring a bell to anybody? Lived in the 300, 300 AD, late 300s. He's a Christian philosopher. He wrote the Confessions. He wrote the City of God, one of the most influential writers and Christian thinkers that has stood the test of time. If you've ever studied church history, you've likely heard of St. Augustine. Do you know his story? Do you know how he came to faith in Christ? As a young man, he had lots of questions. He's a philosopher. Lots of questions about life and answers. He wanted answers to life. He also, he would say later on, loose living. As a young man, I live loosely in Milan. People would know it, understand it. But he kept questioning things, and he studied all kinds of philosophers. He was under all kinds of philosophers. And then he heard of a guy. A guy named St. Ambrose, the bishop, the Christian bishop of Milan. And he heard he was quite elo eloquent in his speech. And so he wanted to go check out the way in which he delivered his messages. But he was there and he learned so much more. It gave him a new understanding and perspective about Christianity that he had never heard before and never had. And he continued to come back. I hear you, buddy. He come back. And one day after he went and listened to St. Ambrose after church, he was with a friend in the park. And he thought he heard a child singing 
and saying, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. And he took that to mean that he needed to pick up the scriptures and read it. And while I don't recommend this all the time, he turned to the passage that we're in. He opened his Bible and put his finger and he read. Remember, this is the guy who self-attested that he was living loosely and looking for the answers of life that would give him rest and peace. And he turned here and he read the words, put off jealousy and quarreling and sexual immorality, but put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to to gratify its desires. And this passage converted St. Augustine. And he tells the story and reflecting on it later, and he wrote the prayer out of his conversion. Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Are your hearts restless? Maybe you need to come to the Savior who can bring you rest. Maybe you need to come back to the Savior that can bring you rest. C3, the message, I think, if I put this all together, these, this passage is where Paul is calling this church to love their neighbor and live in the light. I think the message that we could leave with today is this. Wake up. Put off your old clothes. Put on your new clothes and live to love. Let me pray. Jesus, you say that we can love because you first loved us. Father, make us a people that are moved by your spirit, that the spirit is poured out in our hearts to love, to love Christ and then return that love to those around us that don't know you, to those around us that need your care, even the hardest of people. So motivate us to live this life, to put off the old and put on Christ. Put on the new clothes of our new identity and live for him. We love you and we thank you that we can't by any measure pull this off on our own, but you work, that you're a God who works in our lives. You're a God who can bring about what we can't through the work of the Spirit. So do a work in our hearts. Maybe even take our cold hearts that are far away because of the pains and hurts in life and wake us up. And perhaps if someone's here that doesn't know Jesus, that they would know that old clothes can't be new clothes. That they have no ability in and of themselves to live out these commands that the love of Christ can pursue. That they would receive first from Christ his love and forgiveness that was wrought at a cross dipped in his blood, that his clothes and his body was dipped in blood, that we could put on new clothes in his righteousness. We love you. and We thank you for your word that illumines our path. We thank you for your word that is authoritative in our lives, that is sufficient for our life and godliness. We love you. and We thank you for the grace that you give us through your son who loved us in spite of us. In Christ's name, amen.